Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. Today I have a really special episode. I am talking with one of my personal mentors, a phenomenal teacher, a great guy, Dr. Lucas Landhair slash Dante Shepard. How's it going? Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 30, an interview with Dante Shepard. So, okay, first off, I guess we should start with a little bit of introduction here. So, okay. I first I first met you through through grad school where, you know, I I was teaching courses and whatever and all the undergrads were saying, "Oh, we, you know, our favorite our favorite professor is um is Dr. Lanhair." And so, well, you were kinda... the TA in that transport class that I even had to sit yeah. in for. That's right. That's right. I forgot yes, that. Yes, I was. That was a uh, that was you fun. Taught that was course a... and I was supposed to be overseeing you and you did you did great. <laughs> you didn't need me at all. <laughs> that was such a Oh my goodness, what a what a scary time of life that was. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we we just kind of met and, you know, um it's it's been awesome. I I was able to work with you on Science the World on one of the Assumptions comics, yes. which is really cool. Well, on Assumption a comic on Assumptions, I should say, which is cool featuring my cat Chippy as a uh, giant balloon and, and depi- de- depicting you as well. Yeah, and well, and depicting me is a is a very cool uh, scientist. So that's right on the mark. <laughs> you know, perfect. Um, so why don't you, uh, you know, tell just tell everyone what you're up to right now, and then you know what. Yeah, tell everyone what you're up to right now. All right. Um. Uh, so I do. Uh, I'm a, I'm a associate teaching professor at Northeastern, uh, and so I teach pretty much whatever class they need me to teach in the curriculum. I've taught almost all the undergraduate courses at this point. Uh, and in my spare time, I, I have written, made comics for about the last nine and a half years under the pseudonym Dante Shepard. Uh, I was make, been making Surviving the World, which is a daily photo comic that I started back when I was in grad school, uh, where I was just pretending to be a bloating professor at a chalkboard. Uh, I went, I kind of kept making it while I was in my postdoc, and uh, kind of as soon as I started at Northeastern, kind of because my face was in all the comics as I was using photographic medium, uh, students kind of recognized me, and, and that kind of helped to strengthen some of my, uh, my, my my relationships with some of the students, and I think that kind of helped to set the tone for kind of my teaching style as well, which certainly is, is very educational focus, obviously, because it's teaching, uh, but certainly I use a lot, I mix in a lot of humor, you know, I, I try to kind of create a, a loose atmosphere that I think try to help people learn. Uh, and because I've kind of kept making comics in all this time, I started to try to make actual science comics. So l- recognizing the fact that there were some concepts I was teaching students that they wouldn't, uh, you know, so there's some theor- a lot of theoretical concepts in engineering, and a lot of those theoretical concepts have no obvious physical component. It's just some equation or some, some term that exists in theory. And so it's really hard for students to learn, especially when they are visually uh, visual learners. And, and visually oriented, and even though it's engineering, oh, there's I would you know well over a majority of students uh, in engineering are still you know primarily visual learners. So kind of from there, I, I was able to get a small grant from uh, the provost in Northeastern. I was able to kind of hire some professional artists, which I'd come to know through my making comics, and we've made uh, about we, we've made 
nine or ten comics at this point. We I've been able to start hiring some uh, uh, some student artists as well to to make and draw some comics. So that's been uh, really pretty exciting. Uh, some of the comics that that I've made, uh, especially the one of Fagacity, that that one's gotten used all over the U.S. It actually got used in uh, in colleges in in the United Kingdom, in Belgium, and actually got used by the Danish EPA for some reason. I'm still not sure how they they got their hold on it. Oh wow, uh, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, and then so so I'm still you know working with students right now. I'm trying to submit for a couple uh, NSF grants and uh, actually a grant to the National Endowment of the Arts as well uh, nice. to try to make comics in in different forms. Uh, I've, I've got some really long-term goals. Kind of my science bucket list is to make a, a graphic textbook, which you know is, is a graphic is a textbook in graphic novel form, and, and, and it's a terrible name for it. I've got to think of a better one. But I, I would love to make a com- you know basically a long comic about teaching transport or teaching thermo or, or some other engineering concept. Uh, and, and if it serves as a supplemental tool to learning, I think that it would really kind of it, it help improve student confidence, help improve student understanding. Um, you can tell I'm a professor because I'm I'm bloviating here and I'm I'm very wordy. So. <laughs> oh come on! Don't, <laughs> don't don't put yourself down like that, man. It's it's going great. <laughs> yeah, you know it's what's really cool is so I really I mean first off when I when I joined Northeastern as a grad student I had seen some of your comics before okay but had never like I didn't put two and two together like I think the first time we met was at that. Was that like the AI, you know, the AICHE barbecue? Okay. And, um, and like I, I saw, I, like I recognized you, but I was like, where do I know that guy from? And then, all my undergrads who like were, you know, coming to to work in the lab with me, were like, you know, they were a lot of them were freshmen, and they were like, oh, we got, you know, we're we're being taught by the surviving the world guy, isn't that cool? And like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? Oh, that's so awesome! And then I I saw it, and I was like, that's where I know that guy. <laughs> so, so well, so one thing that I I really, you know. One thing I think is really important that we've talked about a little bit before and you just mentioned is this link between science and the arts. Yes. Right? And that's something that that's something that I'm trying to do here with this podcast in an in an interesting way where, you know, as opposed to like so I would love to, you know, we're starting to now work on like YouTube videos and things, because there are concepts that you just can't teach just by talking, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Even, even, even. I mean, we did a little kind of like a funny little super intro episode on thermo, and there were like, you know, there were times where I was like, oh, this would be so much better if I could just draw a stupid, you know, an engine cycle, right? Like this would make so much more sense if I could actually draw what a piston and cylinder looked like for people. Mm-hmm. And, but one thing that that really. I felt in in undergrad and then even in grad school to some extent is when you hit when you hit engineering as a major you kind of it kind of that artistic side of you kind of gets stifled in a weird way you know I I remember I took I took I actually went to an engineering high school right okay. in Staten Island New York called Staten Island Technical High School and where you know this school is always getting um kind of you know it's kind of always getting like inflated, inflated out, you know, for being in New York city and doing so well. And we have all these interesting engineering programs, but I remember going there and when we got like in, in New York city, you have to take art in high school. Like you have to take at least one art course. Oh, nice. And and our art course was drafting. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like non-creative at all. We were like designing sprockets and gizmos and you know, it was like, 
Where, where, I mean, yeah, you can see where there's the benefit for that, but at the same time, it's you know, it's it's like uh, in college you teach uh, you know technical writing, and then it becomes technical writing in the disciplines, and then everything becomes more. It it all gets so tied into such a uh, a, a tight curriculum that these students have to take, right? right? They they we. You know, even to expand out our labs from two to four credits, and you know, something that we really needed to do, we had to kind of take an extra elective away from the students. So, right. yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, which is, granted, that was all within our, our rights to do, but at the same time, it was another opportunity for students to be able to kind of blend and uh, su- support the other side of their brain. Um, right. it, it's, it's funny, like, I've, a couple seniors have been meeting with this week, and just, you know, as, you know, office hours are getting started up at the beginning of the semester, you know, one was saying, oh, she, said she was taking an art class. And I said, oh, what is it? She said, it's just, it's, it's painting. I said, okay, well, do you have any skills? She said, no, I've never painted before. And, you know, the professor was asking around, said, any of you can paint? And, and, and no one could paint. Like, everyone taking it was just taking it to, to develop in the arts. Sure. Uh, which, which I thought was, and even the professor said, all right, we're going to have a lot of fun here. And I thought that was just, you know, kind of a fantastic way to be, be able to apply on that level. Right. Um, yeah. It, it, it's certainly arts for art's sake. Right. It's not necessarily using the arts to support, you know, STEM. You know, I, I think that's that's one of the aspects within, um, you know, redefining STEM into STEAM. I, I think that some people are saying, oh, well, we need to make it STEAM just because arts is important as well. And I think that's true. Right. But I think that that starts to miss the the idea of, of why we're trying to focus on STEM is the fact that you start losing people's interest because the math gets harder or the science gets confusing and then you start losing that whole, all four letters there, right? It's not right. saying that, you know, that STEM is necessarily more important than arts. It's, it's saying that, uh, you know, that, that it needs to be done better because people are just, are, are getting lost from it. So I think, right. I think that if you use the arts and, and as, where it becomes STEAM and you're using the arts to, you know, to help facilitate that learning, I think that that not only helps to ensure that the arts remains important but uh, and make sure that it stays on that equal level, but I think then therefore it also helps, you know, all, all the, the, that normal STEM as well. So I, I think that it's, it's how you use this art. It can be used to, you know, just provide a, a break in some cases from STEM, but it can also be used to support STEM. And, and I think that it's important to make sure that uh, pe- the students and people are learning that uh, both options are there, both options are available, and to use both those options. Sure. It's one of those, it's one of those interesting things to me because on, on this show, at least, we're always going back to sort of the beginnings of science, of, of, of different disciplines, right? Yeah. And so... It always begins with, you know, I mean, almost invariably it begins with Archimedes or Plato or Aristotle or, you know what I mean? It, it starts with a philosopher. Yes. And the the disconnect between science as a philosophical pursuit and thinking about science, thinking, you know, science as being a, a type of thinking and a way of thinking and a way of, of ordering facts about the world so you can get useful information that whole history gets lost i feel in the you know at least it got lost for me in the undergrad curriculum mm-hmm. you know and and it's one of those things where we when we, we would have undergrads work in the lab we tried really hard to get them to think critically about just planning experiments right why what are your variables mm-hmm. how are you going to map out 
your test so that you're not wasting time and you're getting to the the answer the the fastest way you can. Yes. Right? What's how can you think about creatively answering this problem or structuring solutions to this that will make your paper have a higher impact? And all of those skills were extremely important for succeeding in graduate school, but it's things that like I I don't know if I would have learned those things had I not taken philosophy as a second major. Mm. You know what I mean? Cuz all those all of those things about the philosophy of science and the planning of science, I learned those things in a classroom being taught by a philosopher of science. You know what I mean? I didn't necessarily, I mean, I learned that stuff in unit ops and, and the, all these labs I took, but I think the, the worldview of setting up knowledge in a certain way that it fits within the history of science and a longer, a longer history of like, this works, this doesn't work. What is good science versus what is, you know, simply reinforcing your preconceived notions. All of that is a, is I think also besides being important, it's also super interesting. Like I, I find it so funny that students hate thermodynamics, right? Because thermodynamics is all of the stuff that they talk about on the science channel, right? It's all, you know, Einstein did what was a Einstein was working in, in thermodynamics. You know what I mean? So it's like it's one of those interesting things where I feel like if we talked about the story of science and how it connects from the beginning to the end, I think it can be very effective. Well, I, I think within thermo as well is is that a lot of the examples we use, right, or the, or the applications that we're visualizing, I mean, like you know, we we can rely on the standard example of a piston, right? The, the amount of pressure and, and, and volume that, that are existing within that space within the piston and how much work is being done, right? Or how much energy is being lost and, and, and try to get some sense of the overall conservation of energy within there uh, and whether something is reversible or irreversible. That's not a great example. You know what I mean? It, it, it's a nice visual right. component, but, it, it's, <laughs> but, it's, but it's not something, and, and, and it's certainly something that we can discuss or talk about, but it's not necessarily something that, you know, these kids aren't necessarily seeing a piston every time they're in life, you know, in, in their daily life. I mean, it's not like they're not using them, but but it's not like they're they're witnessing one of these things in in operation, right? Or or if we talk like about oh, here's like an you know an engine or a cycle has these four different elements to it, and there's an evaporator, and there's a condenser, um, you know, and there's a, a turbine or you know a, a a valve or you know, whatever these things are, I mean, they may see the outside of this box, but they may not see what's inside, right? So we can talk about we yeah. can talk about refrigeration cycles, and yeah, sure, there's one in your fridge or there's one in your air conditioning unit, and we can use these examples, but maybe they're not seeing those individual components. So unless you can find some way to to you know better help them see it when they're looking at systems, I mean, yeah, thermo and, and ther applied ther thermodynamics, applied transport, you apply both of them together, you've got an, an air conditioner, right? You've got you've got a furnace, you've got a you know a ventilation system. I mean, that that's all that HVAC is. It's just applied thermo and transport, but you know it's all couched in the theory. And yeah, you I don't know, it, it's you potentially start losing students' interest if it doesn't necessarily apply to some area that they you know, recognize directly or can see with, within the boxes of it. Like, I imagine if you were to take an air conditioner and pry off the, the front and actually show them where all the different things are and somehow show them it in operation, they probably would learn it a lot better. But, you know, if you can't necessarily do that, how do you start visualizing this stuff better? How do you start explaining this stuff better? How, how do you increase their, their interest? I think that, especially with the thermo, we, we, you know, we break it down into thermo 1 and thermo 2. So um, I think thermo 1 is... is 
you know, potentially just as interesting as Thermo 2, but Thermo 2 is almost all theoretical, right? It's all just, yeah. you know, equilibrium between different phases is equal, chemical equilibrium. Um, and, and it's almost all based in theory. It's so hard to really, you know, be showing students this and get them to have any appreciation when you're just, you know, overwhelming them with math. Right, yeah. If you I mean fugacity means but, nothing, you know yeah. what I mean? Like to the real, to the to your real world application, d depending on the way that you you actually package fugacity as a concept, it can either mean you know something to you, or it's just a a, a word that you have to well, yeah, but, but a hurdle you have to. It's jump such through. an important concept. It's such a exactly concept, no, it's huge. There's there's nothing visual about it, so and no, it, no one learns yeah. it because there's nothing visual about it. Right. I, I didn't know so, what fugacity was until I started teaching it. You know, I, I certainly forgot it all. No. no, I mean, well, one thing that's really been kind of funny is, you know, when... So we get some we get some really interesting questions from, from listeners mm -hmm. here, right? And so one of the questions that we got was, you know, there's this theory around that says that people who have kind of near paranormal experiences in homes, you know, where they, they, they say that they're seeing something weird or whatever. What it actually is, is it's the vibration from their old homes piping that's creating a resonant frequency with their, uh, with their eyeball. Okay. And basically it's, it's making the eye, it's making the pressure in the eye fluctuate. So the surface of the eye alters its, you know, its concavity. Um, and it'll cause it to start you know, you, you start to see like shadows or, or distortions or weird things with your eye. And so they've tested this in, in closed areas and they, they show that it is possible to play basically a sound and get someone to think there's someone behind me, something, you know, I see something out of the corner of my eye, whatever. But so in, in one of the, one of the questions was, well, how could we predict that in a home? Right. And so I ended up, you know, drawing out this, like this super good transport to problem. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it was a sweet problem because it's like you have the flow. You've you know you have either laminar or turbulent flow through a pipe, yeah. and what you're trying to figure out is if the pipe is held taut on either end, what kind of forces could you get to occur in the pipe that it would cause it to vibrate at, at this certain frequency, right? And then there's like there there are simple, relatively simple, you know, mathematical ways to like get from the vibration of the pipe to the change of the sound wave and whatever. Yeah. But like. That's an awesome problem, and it's a really hard one, and it's kind of an interesting, like, it's an interesting problem sort that we could give students. These kind of just problems with cool, even just cool backstories yeah. to problems, I think would help in some cases. I mean, there's that funny, there's that funny image that always floats around on the internet where it's like, you know, Lex Luthor stole 20 cakes, and he eats, you know, 15 of them, how many cakes does Lex Luthor have left or whatever? And I think at the end it says, like, Lex Luthor, you know, what a what a bad man or something. And it's like, what is this problem? But if I was a kid learning math, I'd be like, Lex Luthor's a bad guy. He's got five cakes <laughs> left. You know? Like, I think these these connections are, are useful in some ways, at mm -hmm. least. But, so I want to, I kind of want to get back. I've always been really interested what made you start making your comic? Like, what what kind of... Surviving the world. What kind of inspired you? Uh, yeah. So I was in grad school. Uh, 
I had, uh, I, yeah, I was finishing my third year, or no, I was, I was about entering the summer of my third year, uh, and at that point, I was finishing my second semester as a TA, and in Cornell, you, at, at the time, you got this, uh, TA two semesters, and, and that was about it, um, and I, I, kind of, the only reason that I really went to grad school is that I could, so I could teach someday. So I kind of had hit the uh, the highlights of my potential uh, grad career for the most part, and I was just kind of in it at that point until <laughs> the end. Um, and so I'd kind of realized, like a, a you know a semester or two before, that I needed some kind of creative outlet. Uh, I'd written a, I'd, I'd seen some contests online about oh write a TV script, and if if you're the winning you know TV script, then we will uh, set you up with an agent uh, to potentially make a show. And I, I kind of use that, that, that contest as an excuse to, uh, you know, motivate myself to start doing something creative. Uh, and there's no way the script was going to go anywhere, but I, I liked it enough and I was trying to figure out other ways that I could do it. Um, you know, could I do like, could I write, rewrite it into like a stage show could I, or, or something else like that? And eventually I came on, well, I, you've always liked comics, could I make a comic out of it? Uh, you know, I, I looked around for artists, and the only artists that were interested in it at the time, because who was I? I was just some nobody, uh, were people who basically did stick figures, and their stick figures are worse than mine, so I didn't see a point in doing that. So um, I had read on Brian K. Vaughn, who uh, he was a writer for Lost for a little while, but he made some, made just a series of excellent comics. Um, so he's currently making Paper, Girl, uh, Paper Girls... Um, He's made Saga. He's uh, Runaways is, was is one of my favorites of all time. But he, you know he's made just a, a ton of them. Uh -huh. um, X Machina and uh, Why the Last Man are the, probably the ones people know him best for. Uh, but he on his site at the time had talked about well if you can't find an artist that shouldn't stop you from making comics. I made uh, used fo fo uh, photography as the art for some of my earliest work because I didn't have an artist to collaborate with at the time. And so I said well that actually I could I could do that. I could rewrite this script. Um, it was kind of all about essentially someone teaching a, a um, like a pre-college course about what college life was like, and it was going to go back and forth between the scenes and things like that. I said, well, I can just take that one character and be teaching the course and and uh, start make make you know make a comic where he's just at a chalkboard, you know, writing all the various lessons down and things like that. It doesn't actually you know any of the dialogue I had I can rework into the comic itself and. Uh, the character's name was Dante Shepard, so I said, "All right, well, I will play the role of Dante Shepard, and I'll claim that I'm him." Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I made the comic for. You know, I was making it daily. Um, I still am. Uh, I made it. Uh, went about a year, and then right at the end of that first year, uh, all of a sudden, a couple people were sharing links, and uh, it exploded on Reddit uh, that day. Um, there was actually a Reddit link that said, "Are we going to post everything from this site? It's not really that funny," which, which, which I loved. Uh, <laughs> And uh, then from there, I kind of had this this weird little readership and following that's uh, you know made it popular enough that the students knew who I was when I when I made it, when I made it through a professorship. So. Yeah, yeah, man. Oh, dude, that's so you know it's so funny that I think a lot of us get that like third to four year the like that itch in your you're in your th you know you're at like the end of your third year of grad school. Probably half the experiments you've done. If not more, have yeah. not worked. You're and you, and you've got more banging your head against that will not work like, to come too. Exactly, exactly. Like you know, you're at least looking at another year, maybe three, maybe four, depending on how badly your experiments have gone. And I feel like a lot of people were like, "Well, I'm either going to quit 
or I'm going to need to like write a book yeah. or something, right? Like you need that creative outlet. I know in my year we had someone write a novel. We had, you know, I started this podcast. We had people who were, you know, you know Michelle is still making, you know, clay pottery, which is really cool and awesome. And like, you know, there were just so many people that were like, we need this creative outlet somehow. And again, it's one of those things where in some in some ways, some of these things kind of take a life yes. of their own, you know, and which is awesome. I mean, one thing that I find I, I, I at least find very personally frustrating is going on, like turning on the science channel or history or whatever and seeing someone talking about a scientific thing and they're not necessarily getting what they're they're telling you wrong but they're just teaching it in a way or presenting it in a way that's so ineffective and ineffective rather yeah. ineffective i need an it's english so teacher ineffective um, boy, right. boy. exactly like that it well but even besides it not sounding right it's so ineffective that it's like why even have like why even bring this person yeah. on you know what i mean and knowing that there's so many creative you know, creative, in, intelligent, excited students and professors out there. And it's like, why aren't, you know, as opposed to getting a, some random dude who, like, blew up some stuff on YouTube, why not bring, like, an expert on whatever, graphene, to come talk about carbon on your TV mm. show? You know what I mean? So it's one of those, it's kind of like, a, it's become sort of a pet peeve of mine, I guess. But now I'm hoping... You know, I think a lot of associations for science, like ACS or AICAG or, you know, all, all of these, these groups are starting to recognize the benefit of public outreach with science. Yeah. You know, I think I think in some ways it's because of the, rel you know, pretty successful propaganda methods to kind of push down like green energy and carbon capture and all that stuff. And at the same time, too, I think it's, I think it's people recognizing that the the sort of students that we're pumping out may not necessarily be ready to to creatively answer the challenges of the modern world, you know. So what 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 is the, what is the engineer for the twenty first century? As as we yeah, as we exactly. are often talking about in the curriculum and discussions and things like that. Hey, hey there. there, I'm Hannah and I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting problem, you know. So the the one thing that I found I always find kind of funny leaving undergrad is the number of like chemical plants you actually design as an undergrad is like one if you're mm. really lucky. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like so 
you end up leaving and going to industry and still needing a lot of training anyways. And of course that makes sense, but it's just, it's such a funny chemical engineering is a funny field. You know, it's an interesting major. I mean, it's, well, it's so broad. I mean, it, it, that's the toughest thing is, is yeah. that, uh, I really feel like you're just, this is something that, uh, uh Dr. Kate Zemer talks about at Northeastern is, is that, you know, what, what are we really teaching these students? You know, a lot, what we're teaching them is to be good problem solvers, right? Because, you know, we can't just focus on just the bio side of chemical engineering because there's also the material side or the energy side. Uh, and, and you kind of will, will lose that focus because students are interested in, in, in the breadth of the fact that, you know, they're all interested in something within that breadth. So that leaves you with basically teaching them how to be, you know, really good problem solvers and setting them up to basically be able to do anything. Um, you know, and I think right. that you kind of need to be able to teach that way. You know, you can focus on... You can teach them just endless theory, uh, or you can teach them concepts, you know, or you can teach them some combination of, but but it all comes down to, are you setting them up so that if they look at some situation, they are, are, are ready and capable and confident enough to be able to attack it. So, I mean, that's kind of why I, I, on my exams, actually, I, I set up all my exams so that it is some kind of unusual problem, right? So, so it is some. So it is something sure. that basically the students hadn't necessarily seen before, uh, and and it's not that they they don't know the how to solve it, right? So the, the example that that I've done and I've made this public, so I don't mind sharing it, uh, is uh, I made a problem about a flamingo, right? And so the idea was that this flamingo is in like a flamingo-sized hamster ball at the zoo, right? And the ball itself was made out of. Um, uh, plexiglass, and then there needed to be some layer of insulation in there to prevent the flamingo stink from getting out, uh, and then another layer of plexiglass to help hold the insulation, and this flamingo is going to be rolling around the zoo, and you had to figure out how thick that insulation layer needed to be so that the flamingo didn't get too stinky, but it also so that it didn't uh, overheat and die on the inside of the ball, right? And so the students are looking at this, right? And I'm saying, look, you can skip the the whole, you know, I, you know, I'll write like a paragraph of jokes in there just to try to calm the students down so they are less stressful taking the exam. But they're looking at this and they're thinking, all right, well, you know, this is a ridiculous problem, and that's true. But all that it is is just it's a it's a, a composite sphere. It's just a several. Right. It's yeah. It's three three levels of different yes, K it's values. Three layers of different thermal conductivities to it. And and we've done problems like that a, a ton of times. So once they once they realize, oh, this is all this is, you know, then they can start attacking something they haven't seen before. Uh, and if they know concepts, right. you know, and, and they know some theory and, and they, you've taught it to them well with that, that, so that they have some confidence behind themselves, right, then you can really get some sense of evaluating both their confidence and their understanding. And that's what we need to yeah, do. Yeah, you know, it's, I don't it's know. actually... Maybe, maybe, my, maybe the problems I read no, are, I, are a little I... too ridiculous, and I'm willing to admit that's, that may be true, but... I, I, you know, I think that, I think that you need to start thinking about different ways to try to make sure that they have some confidence in themselves as well as, uh, as well as understanding. Sure. I mean, well, some of the things are like when the minute I got out into industry, all of a sudden it was like, Hey, do you remember how to design, I don't know, like a reflux column? Yeah. No. Well, you have to, you know what I mean? So it was like, you, you had to be confident enough to go back to that stuff that you learned in undergrad and grad school and then yeah. start to apply it. And so, no, I think, I think those problems like that are, are super helpful at least. I mean, you know, I'm, 
I mean, whatever, fresh out of grad school, I think that kind of problem is very useful looking back at it now. I mean, I've, I've always kind of had this, I've always thought this would be kind of funny for a, I don't know, like a final exam or something. I know you, I know it could never be done, but, um, you know, one thing with Thermo, like we were saying earlier, is it's so far away from what you normally do, mm. right? And so I've always had this kind of funny idea of if I was stuck on a desert island, could I build okay. an engine, right? Like, could I start to use the power of the island <laughs> to my advantage? You know, I have, I, have, I have normal sunlight. Let's say I have, you know, flowing water with the tides or whatever. Maybe there's a small river or stream. Could I set up, you know, something to harness the power there? And so, you know, and like, the thing is, there's a lot of options there to build a, at least a working, like mm -hmm. a mill or, you know what I mean? Like that kind of creative problem solving, I think is actually really useful for students. And so, I mean, you know, I love that stuff. I think it's super good. What, so actually that one question that I get asked a lot, I'm sure you get asked this too plenty is why did you actually decide on chemical engineering <laughs> as your field of like your field of study? Right. So I, I actually remember I, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with um, the idea of antimatter okay. and nanotech, right? Those are like my two things that I was like, I desperately want to study these things. And I actually got a chance to go to a, like a high school student symposium on nanotechnology in, at Columbia university. And I got to meet Bill Nye and hear him talk about nanotech and it's used for, like, space. And I remember, like, I saw... I remember I saw some guys from Rice University with a ferrofluid inside of, like, a, a bottle or a beaker or something. And so when they put a magnet underneath it, it spiked up. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. There's going to be so many applications, even though there's, like, no applications <laughs> for that stupid stuff. But I I asked them, like, well, what, what field are you guys in? And they said chemical engineering. And I was like, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to I want to be the guy with the weird goo talking yeah. to kids. You know what I mean? And so that's kind of how I picked it. And, you know, it it had nothing to do with ferrofluids, but I'm super happy I picked it. But what so why did you pick? Uh, I think I think I picked it for the same reason that I would, I would argue at least half chemists do is that I was good in that. I liked uh, chemistry and I liked math in high school. And I thought that chemical engineering was the right combination of the two. And then by the time I was uh -huh. too late in the major to switch out, I realized, oh, there's not as much chemistry as, as I thought there was. It's all math. <laughs> no, no, there's almost the most chemistry in the field yeah, is in the name much. of it, right? <laughs> there's like, we, 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 I remember going through all this stupid organic chemistry and then like, I was bad at orgo. I was, I was okay at physical chemistry. Like I didn't have to study for the no, test I was, or anything. I was just the opposite. I, orgo, I, hated, physical I, I hated physical chemistry, really? but I loved organic chemistry. <sighs> Man, Orgo didn't make Orgo like I just it, it didn't make it didn't make sense to me like conceptually. So I ended up having to just make like a thousand flashcards with every known <laughs> reaction on them and just memorize, right? And then of course I did Orgo for my stupid yeah. thesis basically. So that I, was mean, a good I, pick. I took some or but... Orgo classes just as electives when I was in grad school. It's great. Actually I remember um like you, uh, for some like visit to undergrad, I was like encouraged to go sit in on a class, and I ended up. I was thinking, oh, I'll go sit in on a chemistry class. It ended up being orgo two, and I was just watching. The professor was like, now what happens? So I put this line here on the hexagon, 
And I was thinking, that's crazy that it's just another chemical, and now it's poison, and this is this is awesome, and, and I, I really like that, and then I got to do, like, no chemistry, so. Yeah. Right, yeah, and then, of course, you, like, do... <laughs> and I'm not even sure I can tell you what a ketone yeah. is now, you know, <laughs> because I barely even need that, so. Oh, no, yeah. All, all I know, all I, I think they smell sweet. Is that right? That seems right to me. That's well, I mean, when every, uh, half of chemistry is poison, like, man, yeah, so I'm not sure I'd recommend anyone. <laughs> no, if you smell a chemical, you need to run, um, pretty much. You need you need to close the hood, call your PI, evacuate the, <laughs> the lab, please. What What is your... so? Another thing that people often ask me on the show, which I think is actually a really funny question, is who is my favorite <laughs> scientist? Right? And, like, like it's, it's such a weird one because, you know, it's... Uh, science is so... I remember there was a, there's a really funny story that Choi... So my advisor was Dr. Sunho Choi. For listeners who don't know, I think that's actually the first time I've oh. ever said that on the show, which is interesting. Um, you know, his his son said something really funny one time, I guess, when he was at home where his son was like learning, was learning math and he just learned multiplication and they were learning, or I guess maybe it wasn't multiplication. I think maybe it was like, it was physics. They were learning about gravity. They were learning about some, you know, previous scientists like Newton or Pythagoras or whoever. And his son was like, I can't believe they're famous just for discovering like gravity. Yeah. Right. He's like, it, it was so easy to be a... I wish I was... So he said to him, I wish I was born back then because I would be a famous scientist <laughs> right away. Right? Like He was like, it'd be so easy to be a scientist back then. And in some ways, that's kind of true, right? Like, Newton discovered so many things because back then we were still... I mean, Newton died from, like, ingesting yeah. mercury, right? Like, he... <laughs> he wasn't exactly killing it on all fronts of the scientific frontier. But... You know, nowadays, like, a, a famous scientist can be famous for just kind of discovering one small change to, you know, electron microscopy or just a new type of, of carbon compound or whatever. So it's almost inevitable that your favorite scientist would be someone in the past, right? But what I like to always say is probably my favorite scientist is Glenn T. Okay. Seaborg because his, his name is phenomenal, right? His name is phenomenal. He's one of two scientists ever to have an element named for them during their oh, lifetime. Oh, I thought he was the only one. I and thought he was he the only one during his lifetime. He's the only uh, American. There is a Russian scientist who also well, had that, one named for him. That's because the but, Russians and the Americans were fighting over, oh, we discovered this element first. Yeah, exactly. no, the, the, the history is <laughs> Exactly. Oh, you got to do this? Well, fine, then we have to get one, too. Um, so, yeah. Right, right. So, it's... But, like, and he just discovered a lot of stuff, and he seemed like a cool guy. You know what I mean? Like, Seaborg, good guy. And one of my cats <laughs> now is named Seaborg, so, it, you know, it's all worked out well. But, yeah, man, who is your? who would you say is your uh, favorite just, scientist? It's a hard question for me, because I think that I've come to get so focused on, like, the education side of things. And, I mean, like, it, it was even, you know, it was, it was even, like, the decision to go to grad school halfway through undergrad was, you know, was that I wanted to teach. Like, that, that was what I realized. And so... You know, a lot of my focus has just been on kind of the more educational side of things. So, I mean, there, there's certainly, you know, famous scientists that that, um, that I, I love the story of, like Marie Curie and all that, and how she was carrying around, you know, things of radiation in her pockets. 
you know, and and bring right. and bringing people into the <laughs> right. closet so she could show them that it was glow in the dark. Uh, you know, I love that. Um, I, I love like you know some of the stories about Rosalind Franklin, how she you know had, had truly discovered aspects of DNA before Watson and Crick. Um, but I think that w within all that, a, a lot more of my focus has just been in. It's just been kind of more on the educational side of things, so I think that that becomes a little bit harder for me to really say. Uh, you know, it's I'm not saying that the education uh, professionals aren't aren't scientists and things like that, but I think that like they're they're you know I think it's it's a little bit different. So a, you know, it's a different it's a different field. Yeah, it's definitely a different it's a different. It's actually one of my biggest. One of my biggest um, problems, actually, with the whole grad school experience, actually, was that the best researchers, the people doing cutting-edge work, aren't always the people – like, some of those yes. people aren't teaching any courses, right? And so it's kind of like, you know, you you go to this great school and you're like, man, this, you know, this, this guy is like a, a Nobel laureate and he works here. That Nobel laureate is not – he never comes but in contact with undergraduate but, students. But the Nobel laureate might Unless, also like, not be able to mistake. teach, right? Yeah. Right. Well, well, that's the thing, right? Yeah, they're, they are definitely separate things. But it's, it's – I, I just find it very interesting, though, that you can know – that you can know so much about a subject and then not be able to convey it to yeah. someone, right? Like that's – I think because – I think because kind of – Talking is kind of comes naturally to me. Um, in case you, dear listeners, haven't realized, I like to hear the sound of my own voice. Um, but you know, it's—I don't know—I always find that very fascinating. So, okay, who who is your favorite teacher? Uh, uh, I, I guess I probably shouldn't count the ones I had, right? Or, or maybe I should. I don't know. Um, I think I think a lot of the way that I style my own <laughs> my own teaching is uh, based on the professor I had at Lafayette, an undergrad, um, Bud Martin. Uh, a lot of his style. I think I had him. I had him for three classes, um, uh, two two core classes and an elective. And he used uh, skeleton notes and notes with gaps. Uh, and I thought that was just an incredibly effective way to learn. So I kind of copied that. Uh, you know, that he had the kind of a, a serious, uh, serious, but also just you know, kind of a freeing atmosphere a little bit in class sometimes. Um, you know, he, he was just a, a he, you know, was was very funny uh, in times like that. I actually uh, pet sat for him once because I did research with him, uh, and he he had a he had a pet bird at the time. He said, if you accidentally kill the bird, that's okay. I won't it, it, I won't hold it against you. And he was almost like encouraging me to accidentally kill his bird for him. <laughs> right, right. He's like, if listen, I'm gonna turn <laughs> my back right now. If in ten minutes the bird is dead, you're not in any trouble. And I'll yeah. order you a pizza, right? Like, man. Oh, that's, yeah. so that's that's cool, man. It's funny. My, it's actually so. This show, I mean, you know, because you were the person who I was talking to this about this the most, probably besides okay. um, besides Sotvat, right? Is, um, and for listeners that don't know, Doctor uh, Barry Sotvat is probably one of the most badass teachers I've ever had. Um, phenomenal, right? <laughs> so, when. When I was picking, like when I was trying to pick what I was going to do after grad school, I I knew I wanted to teach as well in some capacity. I it started to seem like teaching at a professor level wasn't mm -hmm. going to happen for me right away, and so that was part of the reason why I started okay. this show, was because I was like, well, if I you know 
you're you're not gonna hire me to teach that i'll teach everyone you know what i mean like i'll just yell it from the corners about thermo and whatever and it's so it's it's kind of interesting how i've, I've actually had to kind of change my preferred style because if i was running a classroom i think i'd probably teach it like probably a a mix between one of my undergrad professors, Dr. Russell Carr, who was like the probably I'd say the difficulty okay. level of Satvat with the comedy, I think, or like the levity of someone who's like, yeah, this stuff's impossible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it made it interesting and fun. And when you got okay. it, you felt like a genius, you know, like the first time I solved the first time I solved like a real difficult partial differential equation, you know, as, as much as you could solve it by myself. And it was like, I got an A on that test. I remember, I think I, I probably still have that test somewhere. Cause I was just like, I'm, I've never felt mm-hmm. this smart before in my entire life, you know? And then the next, the next week I got like a zero because we did something else that I was terrible at or whatever. But that level, I think of making something difficult so that it seems it's still attainable, but it makes you really feel like you did something special when you get it right that aspect of it is something i've always wanted to kind of introduce in some way and it's 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 something that i i've i found that i've loved through all of the best teachers that mm-hmm. i had you know but yeah it's it is i'm sorry no, i put I mean, you on the spot I, with who your favorite you teacher know, is. i hope none of them are listening well i mean but that, that's the thing right <laughs> i think that it, that if you become if you become a teacher right i think that you, you're pulling from you know, elements of what you thought worked well for you, right? And and, and I think that some people, when, when they're teaching, right. they're like, oh, this is the way I had it, so this is the way I'm going to force others to have it. But I think you can also just look at it as like, all right, well, what actually worked for me, right? What, what were terrible ways of teaching? I mean, I, I think my orgo, my orgo professor basically just, it was nothing but uh, just PowerPoint slideshows, right? And I think that that's the reason why a lot of kids really didn't like that class. It was it was awful. I mean, my, my wife's a chemical engineer as well, and... Uh, you know, so she was in the class with me, and 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 we we talk about just sometimes just how bad that 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 teaching style was, because you just can't necessarily learn if it's just a giant PowerPoint, you know, TV show, and which is all it essentially yeah. is, right? So. No, yeah. If if you're if you're a professor listening to this and you use PowerPoint, yeah, please. I get I get it's used like for occasion, right? You. Like I'll I'll use it if I'm trying if I'm trying to like show a lot of pictures yeah. and, and like I'm present, talking about case studies and process control. Like then I need it, right? Because I need to to highlight all these different aspects. Um, but but you know I'm not going to use it otherwise, you know, unless I'm doing something quick, like almost like Jeopardy like questions or you know. Yeah, the the thing that I think gets lost in it is actually the. I think there's actually something really instructive in, I mean, I, and I think there, I'm, I'm pretty certain that I read somewhere that this is actually true. Um, I should have checked this before I said it, but I mean, it's too late now. We're already here. Um, actually writing out notes is, is, a, is more of an effective memory um, tool because you're actually linking, listening exactly, and then yeah. doing you're, you're, and then you're, seeing. You're using right? multiple it's kind components of like you, you to, to be able to reinforce it there. Right. Right, exactly, and so it's, I think that aspect of, like, having a professor on the board writing out a mathematical equation and then you having to write it in your book, right, that, I think, is a really useful tool, and so that's one thing that I, I hope never leaves the engineering world, but I, I mean, I do see it slowly kind of getting 
not phased out necessarily, but you know, I've seen um, classes of like fluids or thermo or whatever that are taught pure PowerPoint. And it's kind of like, I don't know how effective that is. You know, maybe it's good, like you said, for, um, I think it's good for like conceptual things and, and pictures and everything, but you know, math, I'm not, well, sold. I, I I'm think not that you sold can do, you can do that. Like if you use the notes with gaps, the skeleton notes kind of aspects, right? So even if you're providing the students with essentially the, the slides, what you're giving the students, um, has elements of it missing, right? So, so then they've got to write down essentially what's missing, sure. and that kind of reinforces their interactivity with the class to some degree. But, I mean, you know, the, the sage on a stage method of, of learning is, is really only so useful, right? Um, I forget what the precise number is, but, like, I think that the, the studies have shown that you lose close to 90% of your students after about, I think it's 28 minutes, if you just kind of have that sage on a stage style of learning, just the professor in front just teaching and not, and just wow. lecturing on. So unless you like are breaking it up somehow with, um, I try to break it up with anecdotes or jokes or active learning from here here and there, um, just anything just to you know grab a few more kids back in. But even you may not necessarily get it back to 100% at any point that are actually paying attention, right? But I mean, otherwise, sure. you know, you're you're still losing kids every time that you are not refocusing them somehow. So you've got to figure out how to do that and yeah. and and a way that that makes it so that they're willing to learn as well. You can't just call on one individual student because that student might not want to answer, right? So so how can you enliven up your right. class? Can you, can you like, you want to say, all right, well, hey, like active learning, you're talking like, all right, well, you know, I'm going to need some answers for this. So I want you to kind of just quickly, hey, you got about a minute, you know, talk among, talk with your neighbors, try to come up with some answers for this. I'll call on uh, different representatives and, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll see what we got. Uh, and then, you know, you'll actually get some answers back. This, there'll be some, you know, you'll shifted the, uh, you'll, you'll shift, shifted the atmosphere. You know, I think there's different things that you can do, but, uh, you know, it, it all, again, it all comes back to, you've got to teach people about the, uh, the process of education. Uh, you've got to teach them about it, like how to, to develop a good learning and things like that. Um, you know, there, there are a number of people within chemical sure. engineering who, who are, you know, very well respected and have done a lot of work in, in education. Um, you know, Rich Feld and Rebecca Brent. I just I was at one of their uh, workshops earlier this summer, which was which was excellent. Uh, and, you know, they've written books on how to teach STEM. Um, Phil Wincott out of Purdue has for for years has been like trying to you know how is a good way of, of developing education. Uh, Milo Koretsky from Oregon State and like his thermal book is fantastic, the best thermal book there is. Yeah. Yeah, but meanwhile he's it's been phenomenal. focusing on how do you improve the the education of of the you know for the students at the same time. John Falconer out of Boulder, Colorado, and I'm missing just a ton of other people. Uh, Margaret Virginia at uh, Bucknell, and I could just keep naming more and more people. David Silverstein from Kentucky. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's just there's so many people that have done work in these fields, and <laughs> and if you have been involved in, in chemical engineering education. Uh, at all, I mean, these are names that that I've known. I mean, these are names of of people that I've known since before, uh, when I was still in grad school, before I was even you know on my postdoc. You know, I was like, okay, what what am I gonna try? What am I trying to do to become a good teacher if I'm able to get that opportunity in a few years? So. Sure. Yeah, man. So, okay. So we are we're nearing the end here. I only got I think I got two more. I think I've got two more questions. I've been holding no you problem. for a long time here. Thank you so much. Um, hey, again, you know, again, the comic that you and I collaborated yeah, on helped kickstart something... my career. I mean, that's you know to to a, to a different level. I mean, I'm I'm now I'm it's now the a, um contributing I'm now a contributing uh, 
writer for the uh, Chemical Engineering Education Journal because of the the comic that you and I wrote together with uh, Carrie Peach drew it, and I think Carrie Carrie might have been actually the one that kind of yeah. kickstarted it more than than you arrived. I was I was gonna say I think it's that <laughs> those drawings are so good. I mean, no, actually, listeners, I'm gonna I'm gonna post a link directly to it, and of course directly to um to to the websites and everything to find uh, to find Dr. Lanier's work and everything. It's going to be great. So, yeah, check that comic out because it, it is a good – I'm going to say it's a good picture of me <laughs> and it's a good picture of my cat. That's that's like did, what did I, I would – Did I tell you what happened like with, uh, with Carrie after, so, um, after she made that comic? I tried to see if she would be willing to collaborate on future ones. So, like, I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm no, signing for a couple of grants here. Are you willing to be, like, an artist who collaborates? Is it, yeah, essentially that she would, you know, be really willing to do that. And, and there's, she had um, experience actually working in uh, labs uh, when she was in, in, in school and all that. And, and, and you know, you know she, she really liked that opportunity. So, like, I submitted the grants, and uh, she, you know, she was online. She, and, like, about, a, like, within days of me submitting it, she said, you know what, an opportunity came up that I've been, you know, been trying to work on for years and, uh, you know, if, if you do get that grant, I'm not going to be able to help you. I'm like, okay, that's great. And, and she couldn't tell me about it at the time. Well, it turned out she was, um, she, you know, then she was named the, uh, the artist for the uh, Adventure Zone graphic novel series, you know. So, so it's like, oh, yeah, that, yeah. that's, that's, that's a much better cool. thing to be doing than working on Right, right. right. I, so I saw, I saw that on Instagram, and I was like, oh, wow. I was like, that's so yeah. cool. That lady drew me. No, exactly, right. right? Oh, it's so cool. It's so cool, man. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's yeah. oh, it's such a cool thing. Yeah, you you've got to check it out, listeners. It's it's really cool stuff. So actually, so now you were just recently named <laughs> one of the 35 under 35 for AICHE, the American Chemical much. Engineers. Congratulations. That's amazing. I mean, man, that's that's some that's some cool stuff. So what's okay. So now you are, dare I say it, a pillar of the chemical engineering community. <laughs> Let's just—you're <laughs> a you're a, you're up there. You know what I mean? You're if there's, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll give it some time before we start <laughs> saying, you know, throwing around words like Titan. I, I but, won't stop yeah, you, you get, but we should we should right? we should not really what? be yeah. <laughs> right, it's fine. It's okay. What what? So, as someone, I mean, you know, as someone whose career, both in getting to getting to actually do science and art together and teaching a lot of people, I think about a lot of the cool and a lot of the, the challenges that scientists and grad students get into just through your comic alone. And then now actually teaching and stuff, you're definitely someone whose work, like I've said, Thank I you. look up to and I hope to emulate, you know what I mean? Um, that same kind of like, <laughs> I mean, you know, meteoric rise, but like what, so what advice would you give someone's at home listening to this right now? They're thinking, I'm in grad school, you know, my, all my, whatever, all my experiments have failed. I want to do something creative. What advice would you give to that person from all that you've done so far? Like, what would you tell them to try to do? Or, or what advice would you give them to try to both have their work stand out, but also to be something that you think would be yeah. worthwhile? You know I, mean? I think that with when it comes to creative endeavors, right? I think that you know we we certainly hope that whatever we create is potentially worthwhile, but that's not why we're doing it, right? I mean, and I think that if you're only focused on oh well, this will become really successful and I'll be able to launch something, 
you know, I, I think that you, you lose the purpose of why you're doing that. And I, I think that, um, you know, I think that there's the, like right. there's a couple of the projects I've, I've been thinking about doing here um, in the future. And, and I've been asking myself, am I trying to do this because I'm trying to recapture the old spark or am I doing this because I enjoy it? And I think that that's been, been a, a good question to kind of keep asking myself here. Um, I think that the most important thing for creative endeavors is is to do it because it makes you happy. Do it because it gives you, you know, it, maybe, maybe it gives you some kind of support in the other work that you're doing. Maybe it's something that, yeah, potentially could become worthwhile or something that could become, you know, a, a strange, weird guiding aspect of, of your career. Or, you know, something that could actually get and intertwine with your career. You know, who, who knows? But I, I think within creative endeavors, you've got to think about it. It makes... Align it so it's something that you really enjoy, something that makes you happy. Maybe you can find a purpose for it. Maybe even from the beginning, you know what the purpose would be, and it's and it's a totally justifiable purpose. But if it's not something where the your enjoyment in it is the you know first and foremost thing, I think you'll lose some of the. I think you'll lose some of the drive behind that in in the creative efforts, uh, and I, I think that's kind of the the most important aspect when it comes to you know, and how you might approach that. So I, I think, I guess that that's my recommendation Absolutely. there. I, you know, I think that yeah. if, if you think that you need a creative outlet, go ahead, you know, pursue it, maybe figure out what it is. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I know that some people basically, that their usual recommendation on creative efforts is, you know, practice, practice, practice. If it's like a comic, you know, write, 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 draw, 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 write, 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 draw, 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 you know, and, and practice, practice, practice until you're ready to do it. My recognition is almost, you know, if it's something that you're really happy with, just, you know, just get going. It doesn't necessarily have to be the grand thing, you know. And I know some people might say, oh, well, you know, wait and make sure you're good enough before you start your grand thing. I mean, if it's something that you're really passionate about, you know, don't let it hold you back. You'll you'll improve on that, right? Um, you'll improve in the work that you do. And and the main thing is, you know, if you have a voice, if you, if you know what, what you want it to be about, then and, and maybe even that will refine itself over time. But if it's something that you enjoy... You know, find some way to pursue it, and some find some way to build it up, and uh, and, and and make it. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing when it comes to creative stuff. Is just make it. If you can actually just make it, then I mean, you know, right. what? Oh, I, I think I could be a great writer if I, if I tried someday. Well, you know, maybe I could be a great writer, but I haven't actually done anything, so you know, I can't actually say that about myself. So. Yeah, it's it's actually funny that you mentioned that we. We get a lot of, and I, and I love doing this, we get a lot of emails and questions and stuff from people who are just mm -hmm. starting their own podcasts, as if I haven't just been, yeah. like, like, I just started my podcast myself. You know what I mean? Like, like we get we get a lot of people that email in and ask, you know, what do you suggest? What do you think we should do? And one of the most interesting stats that I saw was something that really speaks to that of just, like, keep keep mm -hmm. doing it, keep putting stuff out. And it's if you if your podcast lasts a year, you're like already more you're you're more long lived <laughs> than something like ninety percent yeah. of podcasts. Right? So and like in a year, even if you get and then and some of these other stats were things like, you know, um to be within like the top fifty percent of all podcasts out at a given time, you need to get a yes. hundred downloads, right? And it's it's kind of one of those things where it's like it's almost, again, more of like you just keep throwing it. You just keep putting it out there. You know, if you're enjoying it, 
eventually people will come. Eventually someone, you're going to find that niche audience who's going to be like, I love this. I love this person's voice. I love their personality. I like what they're talking about, you know? So, and there's always, I mean, there's always a, a market out there, you know? Um, our, <laughs> the job that I have now, we, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I've, I've had to look up for it to learn more. Um, I found that there are like entire journals dedicated to just this thing that like us and five other companies do, you know, like the, the board of editors is like also all the writers and all the people that run these companies. And it's kind of, you know, so if you put it out there, eventually yeah. you're going to find an audience, I would say. So yeah, I think, I think that's really good advice. So finally, what, what would you say are the biggest challenges that you foresee for I mean chemical engineering for just just technology for people you know what what do you foresee being the next big things that we're we're going to be talking about in uh, 10 years time hmm. I, I think that uh, you know I, I think that we have to think about the, the different uh, extreme possibilities for sure right I mean uh, you, you can certainly use a lot of the uh, the, 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 the more frightening aspects of, of possible you know science and, and different things like that. You know, if we're looking at diseases that we don't necessarily have uh, antibiotics for or antibiotic resistance diseases, I think that's you know certainly could be something you're looking at. You're looking at uh, the need for basically renewable energy. Uh, you're looking at you know needs for certain, uh, uh, basically to overcome what we've already done to the environment, you know? Uh, I think that you're looking at, uh, yeah. with, within biology and medicine, you know, you're, the, the different uses, uh, you know, I think that there's other things that people are going to, you know, we're going to have to overcome um, new exposures and new difficulties for, for sure. I think with the nanotechnology, um, you know, the, the number of advances, the number of opportunities that that, that presents, you know, you're also kind of, you know, that introduces just a ton of safety concerns as well, and I'm not sure that you know that we're fully oh, yeah. that, that the people who are encouraging nanotechnology and the developments and the efforts. I'm not sure everyone who's really thinking about oh that sounds really cool we should kind of keep pushing that direction. I'm not sure that everyone's aware of the safety issues of that. Right. Literally, lis listeners, every time in history we have thought. Oh, that like bundle of particles. I bet it'd be really good if we ingested somehow. <laughs> that has never gone great. All right, like asbestos, uh, nuclear materials. Like it's never, it's never gone super great. I, 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 so yeah, yeah, I'm with you 100. One of the things that, should... that I've thought about for, for in chemistry yeah, for a long with... time is that uh, I, you know, I, I wonder, I, I worry a little bit if if we are oversaturating the number of people coming out who are more bio driven and more bio focused. Uh, you know, are the number of students that are certainly sure. interested in that area. I'm not saying that it's not a growing field and that there aren't just a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of opportunities. Um, but, you know, I, I worry at some point that we're just going to oversaturate in that area and uh, we won't necessarily be as, you know, have the strength in materials, for example, you know, or, or in the other components of chemical engineering. Well, it's, it's one and, of those... Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, those... no that, that's you know, that's kind Sorry, of my main thing. Ahead. Like, go you know, ahead, it's, no. it's the number of great. We've got bioengineering programs and the number of chemical engineering programs that have added bio to their name. And I mean, I and personally, I, I can't I, I do not understand biology. I hated every biology course I took. You know, it certainly it's not my forte. I'm not slamming biology. I'm just 
it's great that there are people that are, are experts in this and are pushing and are using it and are implementing it and integrating it. I just, at some point, you know, we've, we've got to make sure that we have a balance in our expertise that we are producing. And, and I'm worried that in chemical engineering, if we don't somehow do, do a better job to, to present that effort, to, to, to create that effort, if we're going to end up with just this, these number of students who just can't find jobs, you know, who can't find opportunities, um, if we just if the funding opportunities yeah. are not necessarily going to be going to be there, I, I don't know. You know, I, I think that that that's one of the concerns there. It's one of those things where, again, you can look at history and just see, you know, for a long time we really thought plastics was going to be the next huge thing, right? And plastics has been really good for industry, not so good for research right i mean polymers are huge still but the number of just dedicated plastics i mean i think there's there's worcester polytech maybe is like the one i mean maybe i'm getting that wrong but there's not that many plastics specific programs left same with petrol engineering same with i mean zeolites the field that i worked in we thought those were going to be huge and they have been important but like the number of zeolite engineers specifically has dwindled you know so yeah, I'm I'm with you again on that one. I would say. Go ahead. I, I just have I just actually have one final question. <laughs> now, you're you're a parent, and we have we have a lot of uh, with your kids have very cool names, um, or at least I've heard they have cool names. I don't know if there's uh, well, their internet names, or at least the su- the um, students can- are cannonball and torpedo, <laughs> um, because the- because there are yes. creepy people online, yes, there and we go. Uh, and and my kids should have some uh, some secrecy as well. So oh, of course. They should absolutely, I mean, absolutely, of course. Um, what, so so we have a lot of people who are listening to the show and they're parents, right? And they have kids and their kids like science and they want to get their kids interested in science. And so we've, we've kind of started, you know, we've started toying around with the idea again with these YouTube videos where we're going to show simple experiments that you can do at home. Right. And just explain the science and see if people like them. What what advice would you give to a parent who's at home right now saying, you know, my 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 daughter, my son loves science and I want to get them involved in it. What what can I do to help them um, further that? I, th- I think it's a little bit depends on what level you're potentially talking about. Right. I mean, you start losing kids interest in, in like the fourth grade sure. in science because that's when the math starts getting hard. So. Uh, you know, if, if you're really going to focus on it, that's almost like, oh, my kids are, you know, like science, how can I facilitate that? I, I would all, certainly recommend starting that early uh, to, to, to kind of shore up any potential interest that they might lose. Uh, I mean, you can, the more hands-on and, and active stuff, that'll certainly reinforce the learning. There's a ton of experiments that are out there uh, that, you know, that are things that can be done at home, you know, whether it's just simply just making super balls or slime, I mean, you know that's that's uh those are elastomers. You know that's chemistry. Uh, you you can touch on that with relation to physics. Yeah. You can touch on that with relation to math. You can do a, a number of things there. Um, you know there's just a ton of different programs that that have been produced. Um, you know I think that you could you could actually go into the old uh, NSF uh, GK12 uh, the the databases because every college that was that had the GK that the GK12 uh, was was a fellowship program for graduate students to essentially work with uh, 
STEM educators in grades K through 12. Uh, and they would uh, would have to produce some kind of educational cur curriculum that could be used in the classroom. Uh, and as part of that, any module that they developed, an experiment they developed, had to be kind of uh, made available, right? And so while certainly some of those were like, oh, well, you know, I'll create like a hydrogel and, and we can create like a $30 kit that can be purchased, you know, through the university or something like that. You know, in some cases it was, you know, when, when I was fortunate to have that fellowship, we were investigating like uh, friction and so there the kids were like testing and, and looking at friction of household objects so one kid really liked fruit roll-ups and was looking at how does fruit roll-ups affect the friction of a sliding brick uh, and, and then the kid also really liked pudding so I was like oh well I'll coat it in pudding all right well I'll test the fruit roll-ups with the pudding and uh, the fruit roll-ups actually dissolve in pudding apparently so like so like it was essentially the, there was, oh, it was no. a frictionless surface because it just kept on sliding uh, you know, it's, yeah. So, well, I mean, it's you know not true friction. That's but, amazing. You know, it was enough at least for the measurement there. Uh, so I mean, there, there are opportunities. Sure, yeah, I think still. that you can go ahead and, and look up just the numbers for not. You know, look to see what's available in your region. You know, look to see if there are colleges or universities near you that have programs. You know, what what are those programs like? Um, you know, the, there's uh there there are a lot, especially that are just uh focused for uh, girls and in, in, in science, which which is great. And uh, those opportunities can certainly be pursued there. Yeah. So I think this look to see what's available. You know, there there may be way more yeah. available than your school system knows about, and uh, maybe your school system wants to hear about it too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well thank you well, for thank having you again me, so much for coming on, <laughs> listeners. No problem. Oh, please, you're kidding me. Come on. When you're when you're around here for AACHE, we gotta go. I gotta. Well, I, I'll take, I owe I'll you take a the drink. I, you know, we'll, drink we'll save the dinner and for another firm time. Firm handshake. So. All right, all right. That sounds good. That sounds fine. So, listeners, this has again been the Mad Scientist Podcast here with Dante Shepard slash Doctor Lucas Landhair. Um, you can find all of his work on surviving the world on Science the World. You can find him, you know, throughout the internet. Search Dante Shepard. And we're going to have links to all of the information and the websites and things that we talked about here in the show notes. Um, thank you again so much, like I said. And, you know, we'll, yeah, we'll have you, to Chris. definitely do this again soon. This was a lot of fun. Cool. All right. Have a good night. And thank you again for listening. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction. That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.